messed up. And can anyone do anything about it? In this passage, it's a very well-known passage, the story of Cain and Abel. Um, it's in many children's Bibles, um, and that's the, really the heart of this passage. The concept, the big concept here is, this is what is happening in the development of life outside of the Garden of Eden, where man and his wife were sent out east of Eden. They were driven from the presence of God. It begins with a, a short explanation of why they were forced to leave and then be kept out. Then we get this narrative of Cain and Abel. And then afterwards, we see how two families uh, are contrasted. So we'll look at these, this passage under these three headings. We'll see the separation from God's presence, two trees, the wrath of man in Cain, two brothers, and then two families that are contrasted, the two lines, the two family lines. First, we start with these two trees. The end of chapter 3, we see God having this little dialogue where there's a dilemma that man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, that wasn't just a moral condition of, of how they had changed. This was a reflection of how they had broken fellowship with God by disobeying Him. And this resulted in the fall. And the dilemma was, if these two remain here, they might take from this other tree that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of life, and live forever. So God says, we, we have to send them out. This is actually a merciful thing. This is a gracious thing. Because in their state of broken fellowship from God, God did not want them to take of this other fruit and remain in that condition forever. It was necessary for their good eternally to leave. What was lost as Adam and Eve had to go out of the garden was the place where man could dwell with God, a paradise in his presence. And so this begins something that we see through the scriptures, that this idea of man dwelling with God is lost, and the idea is, can it be regained? Can it be recovered? Can people again have this fellowship where they walk in a garden type of place, a beautiful place, a place of holiness with God, without sin? And the first clue that we get with this in Scripture is the tabernacle, where God says, you will be my people, I will be your God, and this tabernacle will be in the middle of your camp, and my presence will be there, and I will dwell with you, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. The presence of God with his people dwelling together. And then the same thing with the language of the temple, where this holy place was in the middle of where God's people would gather for worship and call on him, and make atonement for sin, and call on him in prayer. But then we also see it in the church in the New Testament. And then ultimately in what is predicted of the new Jerusalem, of what will be, what Gordon preached about recently, that in that day, man will dwell again with God and we will be restored. Ultimately, this has come about through Jesus and through what he has done, where the tabernacle was a picture of God dwelling with us. Jesus came, and in John 1 it says that he came and he tabernacled among us. So in John 1.14, we get this idea of what Jesus did to restore what was broken in Eden. God did it by coming to us. Now, we will have much more to say about that in 
our, our plan for the Advent series this year during Christmas is to focus on the Incarnation, how Jesus came and did what was necessary so that we could dwell again with God by becoming like us, by joining his divinity with humanity to be our Redeemer, the Incarnation. Well, this is the dilemma and this is the situation as Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden. They leave the paradise of God's presence. And then these boys are born, two brothers. And what we see here is that the way of Cain exposes a sinful heart. There's a pattern here that is given to us through Scripture where Cain and Abel are contrasted. This story begins with God's grace and ends with a horrible tragedy. It begins with God's grace where God gives children to those who had rebelled against him. Eve is the mother of all the living, and by faith, Adam had just spoken these words that her name will be called Life, Eve, because she'll be the mother of the living. And now God gives them children, and she speaks a word of faith as well because she acknowledges that God, with his help, I have gotten a man, I've gotten a human being, and we have multiplied God's image as we were originally intended to do. Cain is born. The second son, verse 2, is Abel, uh, which we all know um, his life ended in tragedy. The tragedy of Abel's murder begins in verses 3 through 5. If you look at that in chapter 4, what we see is this. In the course of time, so Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. Now, as we look at this, there's a tension that is rising. There's a problem between these two brothers. There were two kinds of offerings Um, that would have normally been perfectly acceptable, either grain or animals. But what is the difference? What was the difference in that God had regard for Abel's offering and he did not have regard for Cain's? What that word means is he looked on with favor and said, yeah, I like that. And he had no regard for Cain's. Cain was angry about this. What was the difference? Why did the Lord God have regard for Abel's and not Cain's? The difference is faith. The difference is that Abel's offering was an offering of faith. We read that in Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. What Jewish commentators have, have said through the centuries is this, that Abel gave of the first, of the best that he had, and of the fat portions. In other words, when Abel offered his offering, what he was doing was he was coming to God and he was saying, I want to give God the very best that I have, the very first that I have. Here it is, God. You deserve it. In contrast, what we see with Cain is he is a man without faith. Cain came and he brought an offering. And again, the Jewish commentators constantly point out that Cain gave just what he would call, what we would call even, the leftovers. That which didn't, he didn't mind giving up. Um, I need to give 10%, but I'll give the, the 10% I don't really care about. You know, that's sort of the mindset that God saw. And here's the point. 
God always sees our hearts in our worship, in our giving. And when God saw their two hearts, what he, what he did was he reflected the heart of Abel, reflected the heart that is right in worshiping and in sacrificing to God. With Cain, something was wrong. It needed to be fixed. It needed to be remedied. When that happened, Cain was angry. Cain said, I'm worshiping too. He was angry and his face fell. God spoke to him. The, the narrative continues. Uh, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? He addresses these things. The Lord points out some things that are happening with him. And he says this, and we saw this when we looked at the curse to the woman. He says, there's, there's sin, and that's a problem you're going to have to deal with, Cain. And this is the way it works. Sin is like a, a wild, ferocious animal. And it is crouching at your door. It is crouching and it desires to consume you. It wants to pounce on you. Sin itself is like a beast. And he says, but you must rule over it. And so there's this either or, this struggle east of Eden of sin around us. And the danger for Cain was reflected in how he was being sucked into this sin. And it was his disposition that God addresses. He says, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? We need to understand that term of the face fallen. It reflects a depression of self-pity. That's how translators have explained it in commentaries. It's a depression of self-pity. So we have anger, which we all understand, and we have this self-pity where his face has fallen. He's angry, and he's feeling sorry for himself. Now we have to learn a lesson from this, because the, the same battle with sin that Cain faced, we all must deal with. Beware, friends, of the dangerous dispositions of anger when they well up in you. Beware of self-pity. These are dispositions that will lead you into sin. They put you in a dangerous position where sin can pounce on you. When you are angry at another person, it is then that you will be tempted to speak evil of them. It is in your anger that you will seek to hurt another person, that you will seek to oppose another person, that you will undermine them in their relationships, in their work, in their ministry. Beware of anger when it wells up in your heart. Thomas Brooks is a, is a, a, former, a pastor from former days that I like to read, and he says, when you see these things welling up in your heart, tell God, Tell God, God, I feel angry about this person. You see, this, this self-pity and this anger was really a kind of jealousy where Cain saw his brother Abel as the problem, this little brother that he had that God seemed to like better. Anger makes you see another person as the problem that you need to remove. What about this face-fallen thing? It's not anger alone here. It's this... Self-pity. Um, it is from self-pity that you think that you are validated in hurting another person. It is through self-pity that you want to vindicate yourself 
over and against another person, even a worshiper of God. Even, Scripture says, to the point of murder. But you might say, I'm not going to murder anyone. I just don't like him. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You see, what we're given here with Cain and Abel is this. And every one of us has to learn this. Little children have to learn this very basic lesson. There are two ways given to us. And throughout Scripture, we see what is called the way of Cain and this righteous way of Abel. We are tempted into this way of Cain. We are told that we must follow this way of Abel. And there are these two ways. God's Word warns us repeatedly about the way of Cain. That would be a good further study for later. This, thing, this, this way of Cain is something that will come into churches. In the book of Jude, verse 11, we read this about those who follow the way of Cain. It says, Woe to them, for they have walked in the way of Cain. These were, were people in the church teaching things contrary to the truth that, that we call this, this, this body of doctrine, the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. And these people walk in the way of Cain by saying, we want to do what Cain did. We want to make ourselves prominent. We want to oppose those that are teaching these, these truths and so there were these fights within the church. And so Paul had to write to Jude, to these believers, and address this. The way of Cain is what these false teachers were following. So what is this way of, of Cain? Well, it's when self-pity and anger leads to harming others. It's when it leads to injustice to the desire to remove another person or oppose another person because you see them as your biggest problem. This is a serious thing. This happens with our thoughts. This happens with the subtle relational things. This happens with organizational things. This happens with relationships uh, inside the church and outside the church. It is blind self Ishness that believes that the real problem is me versus him. And it is deadly. Uh, it is the same kind of jealousy that the other um, leaders in Babylon had against Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 when they set up a way to just oppose him and hurt him. They were following the way of Cain. It's the same jealousy that came up with Joseph and his brothers when they were jealous of him and they sold him into slavery. It's the same thing you see through Scripture where Saul uh, was jealous of David by the comparisons that were being made of the two. And he wanted to get rid of him. He wanted to kill him. This happens in our hearts. We must beware of it. It's a jealousy which ignores God, and it says, even to God. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, paraphrased. When we have this way of Cain in our hearts, in our desires... What we're doing is we're not just opposing a person, we're opposing God who made that person. Because we're saying to God, you made that person who stands in my way, and I want him out of the way. Cain was a man without faith. So anytime you're filled with self-pity and anger, it's a dangerous place to be. And we are warned, as was Cain with this word, 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. See, we are called to live righteous lives. We are called to turn away from the way of Cain. And you will either rule over sin or it will rule over you. The way of Cain makes would-be worshipers into murderers. This is the opposite of what God wants for his true worshipers. The way of Cain is explained in the book of 1 John. If you want to study this doctrine further, look at 1 John chapter 3 later today. I'm going to read a little bit of this, but here's the difference. Your motivations will be marked by love or by hate. And if there is the presence of hate, that's the way of Cain. And you have to confess it and get rid of it. In your heart you will find these. Whether you are truly alive in Christ or still spiritually dead is reflected by the presence of love or hate, specifically for Christians. In 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, I'll read this. I would encourage you to read it specifically from verses 11 through 15 later, but look at the first couple of verses. John says, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's not an easy thing to do. It takes work because we're all sinners. We have to love one another. Jesus' new commandment. Applied to the church, applied to believers. Verse 12, We should not be like Cain. Speaking to believers, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? And this is the reason. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And then he goes on to explain, this will always happen. Righteousness will be despised by those who are of the evil one, who, who are following the way of Cain. And in this whole world, if you stand for Christ and if you live for him, you have a mark on you, so to speak. You are the target of hostility and hatred that comes from the evil one. And you're in this battle. So you see this, then. You see how there's the way of Cain and the way of Abel? There are these two ways. The reason is that, that humanity had to go from the presence of God. This, if we could put it this way, this vertical relationship with man and God was broken by sin. And what has resulted is that these horizontal relationships with people and other people have been broken. This plays out with youngest children and, and to people in to the last days of their lives. Relationships here are broken, but they should be reconciled. They should be, they should be in loving uh, connection with one another. That's the way it ought to be. But east of Eden, this is how it is. I would just say this to y the youngest children that are with us. Beware of the way of Cain. If you feel sorry for yourself in comparison to someone else, if you get angry because of someone else that you want to have out of the way and you want to hurt them, beware of this. And if you're a parent of children, don't allow self-pity and anger in your children. You have, to, you have to usher them away from it. Don't validate it. And it starts with us because they get it from us. We who are adults, especially in this church, we have to set the example of, of the overflow of our hearts 
that we have to make sure that it is love in Christ flowing out. And don't make any room, don't allow any anger, don't allow any self-pity and jealousy to be before in your heart towards other people. Because God knows it all. Um, God is the perfect judge. This is what happens where God addresses Cain for what has happened here. God approaches him and he asks him, where is your brother Abel? And now look at Cain's response. It is, it is defiant. It is heartless. It is an outright lie. He says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, look at the attitude that Cain has. Defying God, lying, and just vindicating himself. And he is completely wrong. But God knows it all. And so God says to him, what have you done? And he says this, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now that's a vivid statement in the Hebrew. That word crying is a legal term. And there's a picture here. The blood of Abel was spilled and it fell into the ground, the very ground from which God made man. And God speaks to him. And he says, that blood is crying to me. And the word crying is this legal term. It's a plea for justice. It's a, a plea for, from a victim of a great injustice. It's like you would see in a movie or read in a novel today where someone is being violently mugged. And they say, help me. Someone please help me. And he's saying that's what Abel's blood is speaking from the ground. Cain was clearly wrong. Friends, listen. You have a life to live. And you must rule over sin, or it will rule over you. This dilemma that God said to Cain, he said, here is a problem, there are these ways, and you need to get off the track of this anger and this self-pity. You have to go this other way. Now, we transition then to these two lines, these two family lines. It's done. God shows grace to Cain. The mark of Cain, some people think, is a mark of evil. And there have been movies and books that speculate about what the mark is. And all of them, almost all of them are wrong because the mark towards Cain is God's mercy to him because Cain was so convicted by sin that God says, I'm going to show you mercy so that no one will attack you. My mark, God says, to you, Cain, will protect you. Because Cain was in great fear. Cain had a conviction of sin. He knew he was guilty, and that's the way it is. When our sin is fully revealed, when God shows us what our sin really is and what it deserves, it is terrifying. The conviction of sin is, is horrible. And we know that we deserve judgment. So what we get here is this. We get this line of Cain, and then we get this line of Seth. The line of Cain beginning from uh, verse 17 going down through 24, it reveals the unfolding development of society through this family of Cain. And then at the end, verses 25 and 26 shows a contrast in Seth's family line. Now the book of Genesis reveals to us these genealogies. And these are, these are all showing us how God is preserving something, what, what theologians call a godly line or a line of promise. Because God made that promise with the curse to the serpent that an offspring would come from the woman to be a redeemer to crush the head of the serpent. We know this to be Christ, 
Well, God is showing how he preserves this promise from generation to generation through a line. But it's not what you would expect. It's not from human strength. And it's not even one ethnicity, one ethnic group that he uses to preserve this. Because you see people coming into this by faith. And you see people that would be within this line, this family, who keep going in a wrong direction. But what you do see is that this is God preserving it in a way that only God can make it happen. Normally what you see is this. What you would expect of the strength of man fails, and then God takes what is weak and he preserves it. And that's how God preserved a, his promise from generation to generation until Christ came. So, from Cain, what do we see in this genealogy? We see a family that develops good things. A city with industry and culture and arts and technology. And these are all good things. But it's without reference to God. And so at the very end, you see this, this little song, this little ditty of Lamech, where he pounds his chest and he brags to his wives like this savage man. And he has two wives. Also, in the book of Genesis, it's always a problem. You want one wife. Just stick with one. Amen. So from Cain, you have all of these good things. What's the problem? Well, you see it in the saying of Lamech. Look at this. Verses 23 and 24. I mean, picture this guy. He's a complete brute. He says, Ada, Zila, hear my voice. You know, real tough guy, bragging to his wives like this. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You know, rips his shirt off. Oh yeah, you're a real tough guy, Lamech. Okay. Well, here's what this is. This is a taunt. This is a taunt like when David and Goliath lined up and Goliath was saying his taunts. I'm going to defeat you this day. You can't even put someone to match up with me and I'll defeat you. And the Philistines will defeat Israel, and we will feed you to the birds. Lamech is the worst kind of man. Lamech is violent, selfish, vindictive, prideful. When a child has a Lamech for a father, when a woman has a Lamech for a husband, it is a nightmare. And this is the, is the character, this is the product of a society where people live without reference to God. Lamech. Lamech is what you get. Here is the problem of Cain's life east of Eden. It became a life, which became a family, which became a whole society living without reference to God. And Lamech is the result. This is spoken of in, in, in the Scriptures, in Psalm 36.1, which is also quoted in Romans 3. This is the description of such a society without God, without the fear of God. It says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the way of the unrighteous. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is what you get. And then, almost quietly at the very end, the last two verses of this passage, another man is born. Now, it doesn't show us where the timelines line up, but God gave Adam and Eve another. And we'll see in the next chapter that this is how God is preserving his promise through Adam. 
But what we see here is there's another line, another family line, and it's different. It is a strong contrast between what, what happened with Cain and his, his development of society with his family. This man named Seth shows up. And what you see with Seth is there's faith. That's the main difference. There's faith. He names his son Enosh. Sounds like Enoch, but it's different, and that's on purpose. The basic meaning of Enosh is weakness. Okay, the basic meaning is when something is incurable or disastrous. It's this concept of weakness. And so when Seth names his son, he names him Enosh, in contrast with the similar name Enoch, where the, meaning, the basic meaning, the concept of that word is strength. You have one reflected in Lamech, pounding the chest, I'm strong, I'm great. And then you have Seth with his family, and they say, we need help. We have some weakness here, east of Eden. Now, why would you name your son weakness? Why would, why would Seth look around and say, I'm going to call him weakness? Seth, I think, seems to be an honest man here who took stock of the world as it really is. He looks around the world with all the pomp that he considers the boastful pride of Lamech, and he says, this is incurable. This is disastrous. We need God. And so he says, I'm going to call my son Enosh. I'm going to call him weakness. Because man separated from God is weakness. We're in weakness. We can't help ourselves. So he saw the emptiness of a world living apart from God. And most notably with Seth and with this family is this, the very last phrase. At that time, people began to call upon the Lord. They began to call upon Yahweh by name. This is a little phrase that you see throughout Scripture to refer to people that are really God's people. And what reveals that is that they pray. In our weakness, people who need God depend on Him by praying, by saying, God, I need your help. Just like Seth and his family, this line of Seth was depending on God. We are called to do the same. Calling on the name of the Lord is dependent. Faith. It looks to God and says, God, we are separated from you, but we need you. So here's the contrast. It's obvious. Cain is a life lived without reference to God. There's no faith. Seth and his line reflects life depending on God by faith. And I want you to understand clearly that you must reject the way of Cain. You are responsible in these ways. You have to examine your heart. You have to take what God has revealed and you have to walk in a way of righteousness. It is without hope of regaining what was lost um, that um, this, uh, this way of Cain. It is without hope that people live in this world and become Lamech. It is without reference to God that, that all the problems in the world have come. Um, the way of Cain is a terrible way. But you don't have to go that way. You don't have to go the way of Cain. There's another way. And it's, it's different than what you might think. There's another option. Jesus said this, and this fits with our Reformation Day. 
Jesus said, um, you don't, uh, the way is like a path, but it's really a pattern of your life. That's the way the scripture uses this word. But Jesus said this, instead of saying, go in this way, follow this way, he said something that was amazing. He said, he didn't say, go in the way, he said, I am the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In that little statement that Jesus said to his disciples, he's telling them, this way of Abel, it's going to be impossible for you. But with me, I'll teach you how to walk in that way. You can, you can be saved, you can be forgiven for the ways in which you have walked in the way of Cain. You could confess, you can confess murder, you can confess uh, all sin, And in Christ, he is the one that can reconcile us to the paradise of God's presence, the way back to the Father. Let me tell you how this works. In Hebrews chapter 12, there's a reference to Abel again. And this is an amazing thing. You see, the way that God uh, told Cain, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this and he points to Jesus And this is what he does. This is so important for us. You see, the blood of Abel was crying out in the injustice. Someone help me. Someone help me. As if his blood is speaking from the very ground. In Hebrews 12, 24, we read this. That we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus died on a cross. And when he did, his blood fell to the very ground, and it was absorbed into the ground. And the writer of the Hebrews says that the blood of Jesus is speaking as well. And it is speaking a better word than the word of Abel. But what is that word? What is the blood of Jesus saying to us? In the context of Hebrews 12, we see Jesus who is put forth. We see Jesus who began and perfected our faith, who did everything that is necessary for our salvation, So if we put one word on what his blood is speaking from Hebrews 12, it's this, righteousness. There is righteousness because of my blood that's now spilled into this ground. When Jesus died and his blood was poured out, what happened? The penalty for sin for all of us who have walked in this way of Cain was atoned for by that very blood. And it can cleanse us and it can set us in this way. It can join us to Christ who died, who doesn't just give us the, the, a picture of the wrath of God, he shows us the mercy of God. And he offers to us righteousness, that we can have all of this removed, and we can walk in this way of righteousness. The blood of Jesus is crying out, saying, there is righteousness for you. There is righteousness for you. There has been injustice. You have been a victim of injustice. You have committed injustice. You have walked in the way of Cain. Be cleansed from that. Come away from that. Be joined to me by faith and live in a way of righteousness by faith. You will be joined to Christ. You will dwell with God by faith. When we gather here on Sunday mornings, you know what it's for? It's for calling on the name of the Lord. It's so that what was lost in Eden, we can, we can listen and we can hear the voice of God through his scriptures preached and read. It's so that we can, in a way, walk in a garden again with God, so we can find rest in Christ, so that we who call on his name can be strengthened by communion with God 
and that we can live with Christ. He is the way. How do you do that? If you don't know Christ, if you don't know Him as your Savior, it's this. It's what's quoted in, in Romans 10, but it's really quoted, it's that Romans 10 is quoted from Joel. And it goes back to what happened with Seth and his family when he realized their weakness and they relied on the strength of God. Joel 2, it says this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know Him, listen to what He says, that He is the way. And you can be reconciled to God the Father in Him. You will walk through this world by faith, and hereafter you will be welcomed into a paradise with God. That's what Jesus offers. That's what He came to do and accomplish, and He fully accomplished it. Call on Him by prayer. Pray to Him. Say, I need this sin out of my heart. I need this hatred out of my heart. This self-pity, this jealousy. And He'll forgive you. And His blood, which calls out a better word than that of Abel's, will declare you righteous with God. Let's pray.